preaching uh, through the first three chapters. That's what the plan is, and then maybe on after that. I'm not, still not sure about that. Last week, we completed the first chapter, and in that chapter, there were some important things that we need to keep in mind as we go forward in Revelation. First, the name of the book is called The Revelation of what? Of Jesus Christ. The, uh, that's what the book is about. The four Gospels, as I've mentioned to you, they tell us about, they reveal Christ and what He did on the earth, His work for our salvation that He did when He was here, His ministry, His example, all of these things give us a history of His life and work while He was here. The book of Revelation tells us about what He's doing now as He's up in glory and about how, what His reign is about as He reigns until all of His enemies are put under His feet. And we see him subduing his enemies as he brings forth judgment, unleashes horsemen that go out and bring judgment upon the earth according to his directives. And uh, he also brings many different challenges to his church to, to purge his church and to challenge them. And uh, all of this to bring about his glorious reign at last, which is where everything heads. Last week, we looked at the vision that John had of him in the second part of chapter 1 as the Son of God. It was a revelation not of him so much as he was when he came here per se and he was in the humble, uh, in, the, in our human flesh, but it's show, showing his aspects of his divine majesty as the Son of God and his glory. The vision was so awesome that instead of leaning on Jesus' breast as he did at the Last Supper when Jesus was here, John fell down like a dead man before him, before his feet. But the Lord graciously comforted him. He reached out with his hand and he said, Fear not, I'm the one that was alive and that died and am alive again. I am the one that gave my life in order that you might live. This glorious, majestic one is the one who did that. And so he is revealed to us. And we saw the very important thing when we were coming to the churches in Revelation. What was he shown to be doing? He was, he was walking among the lampstands, the seven lampstands representing the seven churches that he's going to address here very soon. And in walking among those, he also had stars in his hands that were the messengers of those churches. And uh, the word angel means messenger. And uh, many people think that it is referring particularly to the ministers of those churches, um, sometimes ministers, elders. There's different ways of looking at it. It's those that bring the message. You can say, I think it's even helpful to look at it in a very broad way, that it's everyone bringing messages to those churches, whether it be the um, ministers, the elders in the way that they do, or whether it be fathers in their homes. As we're ministering, shepherding God's people, we're we're in his care. Certainly that's true, whether that's exactly what's being depicted there or not. But uh, over the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at our reigning Lord and what he has to say to these particular seven churches as he evaluates them. And as we do that, we learn of how he evaluates the church today so that we can, through that, learn to evaluate ourselves accurately from his viewpoint we will, uh, we'll, we'll do what we're meant to do with the Scriptures. When a particular place is addressed, is almost always the case. Uh, the Scriptures are written to a particular church in a particular place at a particular time. And when we receive that revelation, 
we take that and we say, how does that apply to us? We're able to do that. We have enough wisdom to be able to do that. And it comes to us in a more powerful way when it's done that way, doesn't it? It's much better than just giving us a bunch of precepts, you know. Don't be angry, da, 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 you know, going through with a list of things that are just, but to say, um, you know, you have people among you that are teaching this and this and this. It's a, it's a living and active thing and it, it makes us realize that he's engaged with us in that same way. It comes, it comes off better that way. It's more, it's more something that we're able to, to receive. It has more of an impact on us. So with God's help, God's spirit helping, we consider both the positive things and the negative things. Sometimes we think if the Lord's going to speak to us, it's all going to be negative. But no, we see in these letters to the churches that he has a lot of positive things to say. Sometimes only positive things to a church. And other times he has indeed many negative things to say. And we need to be open to receiving both. When we come to the Lord's Supper and we examine ourselves, I've said to you before, that examination is not all negative. It's both negative and positive. Sometimes we give thanks to God for His grace that has worked in our lives, how He's given us a love for Him that we didn't even have last week or a month ago, the greater love or or whatever it might be. And other times we're coming and saying, Oh Lord, have mercy. There's so many failings in my life. We need to be ready to receive the message that He has for us. So, um, you know, He says, uh, He he speaks to us in in a very helpful way. So let's, let's get on with our reading here. It's from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And this is the letter to the church at Ephesus. So it's the first one of the seven churches that is addressed. Here is the word of God. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy and infallible word. Let's walk through this passage and consider how it relates to us as we go. That's what we're to do with this material. How does this relate to us? We might compare the church of Ephesus to our Canadian presbytery in certain ways. Oh, why would we do that? How, how would we do that? Well, well, first of all, the church at Ephesus was a presbytery. It was made up, in other words, it's what we would call a presbytery of of multiple congregations that were under a common uh, plural government with the leaders of those churches that would would gather together to to govern and that sort of thing. We know that because, uh, well, this church, Paul spent three years ministering among them, and there were many congregations that emerged as a result. He stayed there because there was such a tremendous response to the gospel. And of course, there were house churches at this time. 
It wasn't like they had a huge church building that they all gathered at. They were uh, in small groups in different places with elders in these, this place and that place. For two years, he taught uh, disciples at a school that they apparently rented out, School of Tyrannus, and people came from all over to learn. Sort of like in our presbytery where we have uh, Gillespie and uh, students come in there to learn and uh, our presbytery supports that. There's one church in particular, of course, that one congregation that really does most of the work there that God has blessed in that way to be able to do that. But we all get to be involved in praying for it and supporting them a little bit. Students are trained daily there, ministry students as well as uh, those who are just having a transition year program. We're told from church history that Ephesus was one of four epicenter churches that were, uh, in the, uh, that, that were active at this time. There was, of course, Jerusalem that was also a whole presbytery. It was you know, many churches, uh, tens of thousands that were in Jerusalem in the early church. And then there was Antioch that was another one sending forth missionaries and, and whatnot all over the world. And then there was Rome in the early church, and uh, then here is Ephesus as well. Another evidence that Ephesus was more than a single congregation is shown through the impact that this church had. The response to the gospel was so great at Ephesus, which was a fairly populous city in those days. It was quite a populous city in those days. But the response was so great that the craftsmen who manufactured idols for the temple of, of Diana they went into recession. <laughs> it was the church, people were, were, were coming to faith and they were finding it was starting to take a hit on their business. And of course, they had people that traveled from all over the world to come to the, the Temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And people would come there to worship and they, a lot of people enjoyed the worship because it was a brothel. They had prostitutes, temple prostitutes. That was part of the worship, fertility rites and that, that kind of a thing. And, uh, but there were so many people being converted. We read about Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 in this regard and how the new believers, you remember that they come and they burn their magic books and things and they counted up the value. And of course, books were quite uh, expensive in those days, but they counted up the value of all the books and it totaled around, for, for our money, around $5 million. I mean, th this was not just a few people in the corner in Ephesus. This was a, it, it, God was really powerfully working here. Uh, it says it was 50,000 pieces of silver, and a piece of silver was a, a day's wage. You would buy a slave for 30 pieces of silver, and there's 50,000 pieces of silver was the value of the books, that, the idols and things that were, were destroyed there. Okay, so in in that way, we can't say that that's like our presbytery. We, we aren't having that kind of impact. <laughs> but um, they, they had a much bigger impact than our presbytery has. But we're involved in planting new churches going forward that way. Presently, we have three mission churches on the go. And in that day, and, and that's in a day when many denominations are declining. We also have had some opposition from liberal churches because of the gospel being offensive to them. For example, when Kevin Carter was there in Kingston uh, ministering there, there's a dying mainline, mainline church that was next door to him, and they, they were offended by his ministry and what he was doing. And when they wanted to, they, this church is having to get rid of their building, they can't afford it. And when he approached them about buying it, they said, we're not going to sell it to you. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a, 
they don't like to see the impact of the gospel, even though it's small things. There's just a it is a small group there. It, it has a it has a bite like that. And then finally, we see evidence of multiple congregations when Paul arranges to meet with the elders from Ephesus at Miletus while making his way to Jerusalem. He doesn't talk to them as one small congregation, but he speaks to them as a church with multiple leaders, as a body, I should say, with multiple leaders, a significant sized body. He warns them to beware that false teachers may come from their own number and also that they may come from outside to within them. And so they need to beware of these things. The structural similarity of Ephesus could be compared to any churches that are in association with other churches in a region. They, you could compare that aspect to anyone. But the fact that uh, there are planting churches and training disciples adds even more to the similarity that there is with our own presbytery. We want to look at those similarities and differences. Of course, we're going to get to the more uh, important ones we need to consider now. A second similarity would be with the matter of zeal for doctrine. Zeal for doctrine is often criticized, but Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for this. It's one of the things that Reformed churches are known for, is a zeal for doctrine, wanting to know the truth. And sometimes this can be done, admittedly, and we're going to get to that in an ugly way. But is it a bad thing itself? It is not a bad thing in itself. It is not at all a bad thing in itself. It's something that the Lord Jesus says is very, very important. And where to our world it might be more appealing to say, oh, we don't really care about doctrine, doctrine divides, and we just want to love, and we just want to, you know, we don't care about some of those particular doctrines and things like that. The Lord Jesus makes it clear, actually in all of these letters, that it is very important to him. And so we need to take heart. We need to take that in. Uh, zeal for doctrine is criticized, but Jesus says it's good. In verse 2 and 3, he praises them for their hard work for his name and for how they do not tolerate false doctrine, but even call it out. Revelation 2.2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. See, that's a good thing. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now, this then, this Presbytery Ephesus is what we could call a reformed church because they had reformed. They had rooted out error that was among them, false teachers and such. This had not always been the case with Ephesus. They hadn't even been around that long. But already we we see that when Paul met with them, I mentioned in, in Acts chapter 20 at Miletus, he met with the presbytery there at Ephesus, and he warned them about the false teachers rising up among them. That was a warning that was given in about A.D. 58. It was only five years later that Paul wrote to Timothy at Ephesus And he said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine 
nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. And the whole epistle of 1 Timothy is a call to purge out the false teaching that is at Ephesus. Five years after Paul warned them that this might happen, they didn't heed the warning. And so now Timothy is sent with the mission, bring reformation. He's like John Knox coming to the churches and saying, you need to repent. These teachers are teaching false doctrine. This needs, they need to be removed from the church. They must have received Timothy's instructions. Because when Revelation is written, and of course, I, I tend to be inclined toward the earlier date, so it was maybe just two or three years later, which would make perfect sense if Timothy had just been there and he had just done this work, and two or three years later, Jesus writes to him and he says, hey, you did a great job. You examined these teachers. You, you purged out these false apostles. You, you were intolerant of all the, the, the false teaching that was going on. You rooted them out. They were laboring in the ministry the word that's used there for labor is to labor to the point of exhaustion. Okay, So uh, they were not growing weary in contending for the faith. They didn't say, oh, this is too hard. We don't care what they do over at that other congregation over there. We'll just let them do their thing and we'll do our thing. No, they were continuing to labor in word and doctrine. Jesus wants that. Jesus doesn't say, don't care about it. He says, care about it because it matters. And you see, there's always a resistance to that. This is something that our presbytery is known for and sometimes criticized for. We live in a day when few are willing to uphold the teachings of our faith, especially the ones that the world despises. Things like the doctrine of election. Oh, let's not bother with that. Or that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Oh, you know, maybe if somebody lives a good, honest life as a, in another religion, they could go to heaven too. Or that those outside of Christ will, will perish in hell. Well, there's not really, we don't know if there's really a hell, they'll say. Or, or biblically regulated worship. Sabbath keeping. The distinctive roles of men and women in church and home. Equally, few are willing to preach against issues like feminism or transgenderism or gay marriage or homosexuality or abortion or euthanasia. The pressure is on not to expose heresies that are, are about in other churches, such as the Roman church or the liberal mainline churches or the Greek Orthodox church, the, the churches that preach the prosperity gospel. Say, oh, we shouldn't talk about other churches. Jesus says we should. Or those so-called evangelical churches that are woke or that embrace the causes that the world embraces such as accepting those who practice sexual immorality, being tolerant of that. He says, you're not tolerant of evil, Jesus says. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Many of our ministers labor hard in word and doctrine. Our churches typically in our presbytery, I think all of them, have uh, two services on the Lord's Day. Many churches all around the world used to do that, have abandoned that practice. We don't need that, they say. Sadly, we too are seeing slackness sometimes in our own congregation in that regard. Jesus wants us to be zealous for doctrine. Our, uh, our sessions, our elders carry out church discipline and fence the communion table in a day when that is looked at as arrogant or evil. Where we do the Lord's table every week, then people see it regularly where we fence the table. 
I've known some of our other churches that do it not as regularly. They'll have someone come and they love the church and they attend there for a few weeks. Then they have the Lord's Supper and the table's fenced and they say, oh, we're not going to come here anymore. They, they're offended by it. And this is something, again, that we, we should do as God's people. Jesus has told us to exclude those who will not repent from the table and from the membership of the church. I remember uh, when I preached on church discipline here not long ago and there was a visitor that said, I, I, never heard, I never heard of this before. I never knew there was such a thing as church discipline. It's not something that we like to do, but it's something that God approves, that He wants. The pressure is on to drop difficult practices like that. But like the, the, the Presbytery of Ephesus, the churches in our Presbytery have, I believe, persevered and not grown weary in doing these things in a world that opposes them. Sometimes losing people that were potential members. Sadly, then, we, you know, we need to repent of slackness that we have had in not exercising discipline as we should in our own congregation. It's easy to grow weary when the pressure's on to conform to the world. We can more easily dismiss what the world says when we, we see what Jesus commends. In other words, when we hear our Lord saying so clearly these are good things and the world and other churches are criticizing these things, we can dismiss them. If the Lord is pleased with them, that's all that matters. Okay, so it's easy then to, it's much easier to see what our Lord says here. The ministry is responsible to do these things, but every member has a role of supporting these things and of, of encouraging them and desiring them and submitting to these things that Jesus wants. We're all together in this. Those are the good things. And in some cases, for Ephesus, it was better than it is for us. We need to shore up on some of these things. But despite all of this praise of the church at Ephesus, our Lord has a very stinging indictment for them. And this is an indictment that could often be leveled at churches that are zealous in discipline and are zealous in purity of worship and are zealous in doctrine and in removing those that need to be removed. He declares to them without any mitigating that they have lost their first love. This criticism is leveled against them in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And there is strong language that's used here. The word left, translated left, the word used in the original could be translated abandoned. You have abandoned your first love. Not only that, but first, it's the first love that has been abandoned. That is the love that they had when they first came to believe. Where love should be more developed, it should have grown stronger since they first entered into their relationship as Christ's bride. It had grown weaker since that time. It should have matured. It should have increased. But now, not only grew weaker, but it has abandoned, they have abandoned it. And when you get down to verse 5, Jesus used the word to, from which you have fallen the perfect tense is used. What that means is not from which you are falling or slipping, 
but a completed action, a perfect tense. It's what you've already, you've already fallen from this. You've lost, you've, you've abandoned your first love. This is a hard blow. It's a hard blow because of the, the language that's used, but it's also a hard blow because the summation of our whole Christian duty, what our duty to God is that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbors ourselves. So if we're failing in this, we're failing in our whole duty to God and man. In 1 Corinthians, Paul really uh, hammers down on this too when he says that you can give your body to be burned and you can speak with the tongues of men and angels and you can have all knowledge and faith to move mountains. But if you have not love, he says it profits nothing. What are you even doing? It's a hard blow also because it comes to a church that was serious about God. It says they did what they did for His name's sake. They could argue, well, we do love you. We did all these things for your name's sake. You see the, all, all the upholding of sound doctrine? They were working hard and they were zealous. They said, we want to please God. We want to do what God wants. And he comes and he says to those people, you lost your first love. You've abandoned your first love. They were facing opposition. They were paying the price and they were doing it for his sake. They might have been hurt. They said, Lord, we did all this for you. No, you don't do that with the Lord Jesus. Remember the one that we saw that is reigning Lord. His judgment is pure. He's the judge of all the earth. When His word comes, you can't argue with Him. It's quite clear that Jesus does not take lightly or look on it as a little thing. He warns them in verse 5 that if they don't repent and they don't start loving again, He will come quickly and remove their lampstand. Take, take them away as a church. Clearly, Jesus does not want His church to go through the motions without love. We need to evaluate ourselves in this matter. Has our love for the Lord grown cold? Or have we even abandoned it? I have observed something when I preach sometimes. Whenever I preach what you might call practical message about, messages about basic Christian living, it's often a good deal of attention. But when I preach about the glory of Christ, about his great love for us, what he has done on the cross, about his overall excellence, kind of like the sermon last week, it was about the glory of Christ. There's not near as much visible interest. You can see it in sermon audio as well. Put up a message about depression, anxiety, and tons of people watching those messages. Put up one about the glory of Christ. Oh. They're not, not so interested in that. Series on the Christian family is more engaging than one on the Song of Solomon and the beauty of Christ and his, and his uh, love for his bride. In our prayers, how much time do we spend praising the Lord for his beauty, for his goodness, for his majesty, for his glory? How, how, much, how many words of praise come out of our lips? And how often is our prayer just give me prayers? Lord, I need this. I need that. What's this? When are you going to do this? Help me with this. Help me with that. Help me with the other. We should pray those prayers. Never should we leave those prayers out. But where are the prayers praising Him and expressing our love to Him for, for His excellence? In comparison to, you know, we, we, we're very eager to ask Him if we have a deficiency to provide for us or to heal us or to deal with the encroaching government that is cramping our style 
or a hostile world or a difficult spouse or a difficult brother or sister. But what about delighting in his love? And what about those, those difficult people? Does the love of Christ constrain us to love them, to pray for them? Do we reach out to them and do good to them or do we avoid them? That's not love to our neighbor. Do we shed tears for the lost who are trapped in sin? Do we stay up late praying for them or get up early to pray for them? Do we try to overcome evil with good? Or do we just get irritated about people that do us evil? Do we actually sacrifice for the people that we live with every day who are even the ones that we say we love? Do we go the extra mile around the house? Or do we slack off and hope somebody else will pick up our slack? How, how are we loving? How are we doing? I think we could use some help in recovering the love. Maybe the love that we had when we first believed. Our Lord tells the church at Ephesus what they need to do about this problem of leaving their first love. Three things in verse 5. Remember, repent, and do the first works. Let's flesh these out. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Like I said, it's like it's already, you're already fallen. Remember where you came from. Look back to the time when you first came to understand and believe the gospel. Remember the fresh love that you had at the beginning when, when you were willing to lay down everything for Christ. You wanted to do anything you could for Him. When you wanted Him to be honored and you wanted everyone to know Him. Sometimes you almost drove people crazy because you were so anxious for them to know about the Lord and, and who He was and that they needed to be saved. You loved the people around you. You weren't hostile or bitter toward them. You had been renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now in saying that, I hope some of you can say, you know what, I don't really want to go back to those days because my love for Christ has grown richer and deeper since then. That's possible. And that's the way it should be. That you think back and you say, whew, I really don't want to go back to the beginning because I've grown. That's, that's what it should be in the Christian life. But if you look back and you say, oh, my love was much stronger. My, it was much stronger back then. And there's an issue, isn't there? But perhaps some of you can see that you do not love the Lord the way you did when you were first converted and you, you can see that it's grown stale. So our Lord says, remember, remember what it was back then. Remember the times that it was strong and beautiful. Second thing he says is to repent. Turn away from that cold heart. Turn against that cold heart with a vengeance. We're to hate our sin. Jesus loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Turn against that cold, proud arrogance that has spoiled your love for your Savior. Abhor your sin. Sin against such a gracious, giving Lord who poured out His life for the likes of us. We need to be disgusted with such inappropriate behavior. I know that uh, when I think about different times when God has really convicted me of sin, it's when it's not just that, I know I shouldn't have done that, and then I go back and do it again. But it's when that sin becomes something that I abhor. It becomes ugly and despicable, and I don't want to go near it anymore. That's when really you find repentance. And a lot of times I don't have repentance in certain areas. I, I know it's not right. I know I turn away from it. I try to resist it. But when you say, this is just plain disgusting. And so is a lack of love 
for one like our Lord Jesus Christ is so inappropriate. So repent. And then we need to actually do the first works. Start loving again the way that you did then with that freshness and that fervency that you had. And where did it come from? Where did that fervency and that, that freshness come from? It came from faith. You had to come to Him for forgiveness and new life. And you were looking to Him for that. You were trusting Him for that. You were rejoicing in Him and what He did. And so you loved Him. Your eyes were upon Him. You were searching out His greatness. You were eager to obey Him and to please Him in every way. Yes, if you have let sin go on in your life, not dealing with it, that's the thing that will ruin your walk with Christ. You, don't, you, you let the sin grow up and you don't come to Him for forgiveness and cleansing. You just kind of dismiss it and your heart gets harder and harder toward that sin where it doesn't really bother you so much as it did at first. You become hardened and then you don't love the Lord anymore and you don't love His people anymore and you get weary of Him and you don't want anything to do with Him. You'll have negative associations with the church because, and with other believers because when you're around them, it, it brings that guilt up that you're trying to, that you're trying to avoid. You're not going to like being at church. You're not going to like being with God's people. You, it's only when you lay down your life for Him that you will love Him. Just as it is only when you love Him as a gracious Savior that you will lay down your life for Him. Go back to loving Him. Go back to loving your neighbor. Go back by His grace. Come to Him and be restored, both forgiven and renewed. But there is one thing that Jesus does not want you to do. This goes back to what we were talking about before. Jesus does not want you to abandon your orthodoxy in the name of promoting love. I reminded you a few weeks ago that our vision as a church has been all along, though we've sometimes not remembered it so well, but to have both sound doctrine, discipline, that kind of thing, and love, ardent love, together, to have both things together, because that's what our Lord wants. This is very clear from this passage. This combination is very difficult to maintain. When we focus on love, we get love confused with toleration and with accepting things that are sinful, like the deceived parent who says they love their child too much to chasten them. Yeah, right. You don't love your child if you don't chasten them. But you can see where that sentiment would come from. Remember that Jesus commended them heartily for being zealous about his truth and calling out false apostles and, and despising the evil deeds that they were doing. Unlike us, especially in our day, Jesus does not see rigorous doctrine and practice that is contrary to love. He does not see it as unloving to be zealous in discipline and doctrine and such things. We must not believe the lie that our society tells us about that. That if you're zealous for doctrine and discipline and purity, then you're unloving. It's unloving to them because it stings them. But it's actually what the world needs to hear and what our brothers and sisters need to hear. We need to have both of them together. So after rebuking the Ephesians for abandoning their first love, 
Jesus doubles down in commending them for their intolerance of the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. Isn't it interesting how it's laid out? Because he'd already commended them for purging out things, and then he comes back again after he says, you've lost your first love. And he says, verse 6, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He wants them to hate what he hates, the deeds of these people. From what we know about these Nicolaitans, pretty much all the people in the early church would say this. They were a group that was a lot like some evangelicals today. The Nicolaitans said that we should value our freedom in Christ and, you know, like a little little fornication, like we should accept people as good members in good standing if they're, you know, they're shocking up with someone or something like that. It doesn't really matter. We want to love everybody. That was the Nicolaitans. They were, they were tolerant of, of, of things like that or a little looseness in worship, a little bit of idolatry. They were known for that as well. It doesn't really matter how we worship God, you know, to make, make us feel good. They would say that it was unloving to hold a tight line on those things. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wants us to oppose and hate these deeds. And at the same time, to be full of love for him, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, love for the lost, for our neighbors, and even our enemies. Love, 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 love. Rigid doctrines, high morals, And tender love can be done at the same time, but only by the grace of that one that John saw in his vision, who was so glorious in his purity that he fell down as a dead man at his feet and who extended his hand and said, Fear not, I'm the one who lives and died and who lives again. He's our model of having these things together. All who have ears to hear need to hear what the Spirit says. Jesus declares that if lovelessness persists, He will remove this church. He will take the lampstand away from the messenger that He's writing to. Notice that He refers to it to the messenger as your lampstand. I'll take your lampstand away. This is a terrible thought, but it happens all the time. I mentioned this this morning. Churches fail and fold and have closed and are no more. There's not much of this church at Ephesus left, is there? The goal of Christ's salvation is to restore us to God. And a church, and, and if a church does not love Him, such a church will be removed from the care of our Lord who holds the ministers in His hand and who walks among His churches, caring for them, correcting them, encouraging them, feeding them, commanding them, and loving them. He'll remove them. So there won't be seven lampstands in in, with these churches, but there'll only be six of them. This one's not with him anymore. He's turned them over to Satan. That lampstand has been taken. It's not a lampstand anymore. It's been handed over to Satan. That's what we're talking about. But at the same time, Jesus promises that anyone who overcomes will not be cut off with the rest. What does this show us? This is to individuals. Anyone who overcomes. He is not only intimate with every church in the whole wide world, as he is with these seven churches here. He is also intimately connected to every single individual 
in every single church. Each one of you, he knows and is intimately acquainted with, he knows the good, he knows the bad. He knows everyone who is sincere toward him, and he promises rich rewards to them. Here the reward is the promise to eat of the tree of life that is in the midst of the paradise of God. So even though your church might be destroyed and cast out, those who overcome, he will keep and preserve. So many times this has happened in history. It happened when Jesus came. The church in that day rejected their own Messiah and Jesus took the ones who overcame by trusting in Him, overcame by faith, and He cared for them and went forward with them into history to send out the gospel into all the world. This reward that is promised here to eat in the midst, the, the, the tree of life that's in the midst of the paradise of God, this is a reward that suits those who love Him the best. These, these rewards and things are pertaining to what some of the issues are in the church. Just as the one that says that, uh, that he's the one that walks among the lampstands, you see. He's saying to these people, if you don't love me, I'm going to take away your lampstand if you don't repent. So what about this tree of life thing? Eating the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God means that communion with God has been ultimately and completely restored. And that it is completely secure. The tree of life was the tree that they ate with the pledge of eternal life in it if they continued in God's covenant, which they didn't. And when they didn't, God said, don't let them eat of this tree because it's a false testimony to them. They've, they've cut themselves off. So if communion with God through Christ is what you want, if you love Him and that's what you want, that's what you'll have. He says that this is what you'll have. You will get it to the uttermost from our Savior. It will develop. It will grow. If you have no love for God and no desire to be with Him, you won't be with Him. You'll be cut off. Heaven is for those who love God and who want to be with God. That is what Jesus came for, to restore us to God. He went to the cross to restore in us who rebelled against God for idols to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Please stand and let's ask Him to help us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You with gladness and thanksgiving for the revelation of Jesus Christ that we have in this last book of the Bible. We thank you for the glory of the Son of God who came and dwelt among us and who now ministers to us from his place in glory. We thank you that he is intimately involved with us and that each person who loves him, that each person who overcomes by faith, who, who rests in him and who serves him and calls on his name, that he will give to eat in the paradise of God, to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. That we will have communion where this tree is before you, where you dwell, where you are, where you manifest yourself. And Lord, we pray that this would be our earnest desire as your people. Oh Lord, grant us repentance from any hardness, from any bitterness, from any hard heart toward you. For you are a Savior who is worthy of all of our love. 
Father, we pray that we would see your great love, that we wouldn't be like the people in Malachi that said, how have you loved us? But we would be rather the people who say the same words, how you have loved us. And the amazing love that you have shown. Father, we pray that you would grant to us a an assurance of of what you have revealed to us, a certainty of all that you have done, and that we would hold to that and believe that, and then we would live for you as those who are filled with gratitude. Father, we thank you that by the working of your Spirit that we can overcome, that by by Christ we can be forgiven, that we can walk with you and, and we can live unto you. Father, thank you for these strong things that you have said in this portion of Scripture that we have read. And we thank you, Lord, inasmuch as you have given it to us to be a Reformed church that is is seeking to walk in the truth that is zealous for doctrine and, and for preserving the truth that was once delivered to the saints and the practices that were established by the apostles. We pray, Lord, that we would, that we would maintain that zeal, that there would be a fervency in us about that. But Father, we also pray that you would have mercy on us and as much as we do not love you and love our neighbor and love our brothers and sisters. Father, give to us that ability to be like Jesus who can say very strong things that are bad and wrong while also loving. We pray, Father, that we would be a people who are like him. Father, it is an alien thing to us in our flesh to be able to, to live that way. We always want to go one way or the other. We become cranky, orthodox people or else we become loose, loving people, as so-called. And Father, neither one is really the truth. For you have said that we should truth in love. And we pray that that would be the way that we live. Oh, Father, grant us the grace that it may be so and help us to, to watch over ourselves. Some of us gravitate one way and some gravitate the other way. But we pray that we would gravitate to the one who is the truth and who is filled with love beyond all measure. May we be like him. May we walk as his disciples. May we be fed by him. May we be nourished in our souls by him. May we receive his word, his doctrine, his teaching, his guidance. And we may, despise, may we despise anything else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen of our God. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. 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 Please be seated for a minute if you have any questions.